everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. This episode is going to be a little different because we're actually going to listen to a breakout seminar that Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, did on February 1st at the No Regrets Men's Conference. This conference is an annual event designed to create an environment for men to be challenged in their relationship with the Lord at home, in the workplace, and in their ministry. Thousands of men come together in southeastern Wisconsin for this conference, and in this past one, Nick spoke on the topic of sexual identity, which is a really important topic for all of us to understand. If you are looking for even more clarity and teaching on this topic, mark your calendars for High Point Church's Sexuality Everywhere Conference on October 9th and 10th, 2020. As always, if you've got a question about what you heard, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. So um, for the purposes of this morning, I'm going to define sexual identity as that which flows from the maleness and femaleness of our being and how that forms us for life and godliness, okay? rather than just whatever might be in our heads. So, okay, let's start with uh, so uh, our church has a Christian school attached to it. Um, you can almost set your watch by the fact that about a week into the second month of every year, the principal will come and ask me to talk to the fifth grade boys because all their little like pubescent energy is coming out and they're starting to compete with each other and compete for the attention of girls. And But inevitably what starts happening is they start treating the girls the way they should, mainly like touching them in ways they shouldn't in moments that they're trying to pass it off as something else. And so like, can you please come and tell these boys they are not allowed to te- touch girls this way. And I'm like, okay, because if you know anything about Christian schools, they don't pay a lot, and so all the teachers are women. And so they need a dude to come do this, because you may not know this. Um, women can impart anything to men other than manhood. If you have an all-boys school, women can teach all-boys schools. They can teach math and science, anything, they can teach anything. They cannot teach manhood. It's the only thing they can't impart to men. Do you understand? So that you need a man to come in. So I come in, so what do I tell them? If you're the pastor... What do you tell them? Don't touch the girls. Don't touch the girls, right? <laughs> right? So I remember when they told me this, I was like, okay, I just need to go in there and like read them the right act. And I was like, okay, wait. That's probably not right. right? And I thought, okay, so I could just be like, don't touch the girls. That's not right. And I thought, well, I could say this. Because they all claim to be believers by that point. It's a Christian school. Whether they are or not, they all claim to be. Everybody's accepted Jesus. So I can say, all right, these are your sisters in Christ. Do you think you should be treating them that way? Do you think you're... Heavenly Father would want you to treat him that way, right? That's not good enough either. I realize that's not good enough. Because every young man at that age feels in their primal self this like bubbling up masculine energy. That's why they're doing this, okay? They have no idea what to do with it. And if you don't tell men what to do with their masculine sexual energy, they're going to do something with it. So you can't just tell them what not to do. It is insufficient. You can't say, don't touch the girls, and then leave. You've got to tell them what they are going to do. So, okay, I got in a little trouble for this. What I said to the boys, so here's my lesson to the boys. Okay, this will be a short part of this. I said, listen, in some sense you could think of human flourishing like a garden in a world where you have to wall it off. Okay, the world's not perfect. So think of a walled garden, okay? So for the most part, those four words are very important. For the most part, male energy is something like the one who builds the wall, brings resources through the gates into the garden, and then stands on the wall and protects it. 
to summarize that, you could say provider and protector. Okay? Now, for the most part, female sexual energy and identity will, with creativity and nurturing energy, create something both productive and beautiful in that space. Now, yes, you help each other. If enough people are going coming over the wall, she picks up a bad laugh. Right? And if more stuff needs to be weeded, you hand it out. But there's, a, there's actually a division of being and also a division of labor right? that happens and creates more productivity between men and women. Now, here's the thing. If the role of the man, the way he's supposed to use his energy as a man, is to provide for and protect, that means there's a certain amount of strength and power that has to be utilized in that way. Now, if they are not taught how to use it, they are going to use it another way. So to alliterate, the way I normally say it is, every man, will either become a provider and a protector or a pirate and a pillager. Every man. If they embrace their masculinity, which they usually will at some point, because self-loathing only goes so far. Okay? So at some point, people will say, you're bad because you're a man. And at some point, what men do is they say, screw you, no, I'm not. Right? After, like, you can only create so much insecurity and so much anxiety and so much depression in men, and a certain percentage of them will withdraw to their mom's basements and they'll watch porn and they'll play like video games where they can kill people and win. And they'll be like, I'm fantastic because I'm expressing my sexual energy and I'm taking dominion in the video game, right? That's false masculinity. It doesn't mean you can't play video games. It just means that is a false version of what masculine energy is supposed to be. That's why you love video games so much. That's why I have to get my girls off social media and I have to get my boy off video games, right? It's fundamentally different. Now, so what I told the boys is this. Listen, either you will embrace that as a man... Your masculine energy and power is designed to create something good, to take dominion over a chaotic world, and to create a space of nurturing that you protect with your strength, like a knight. Like you, you embrace the nobility of that. Or if you don't use your power to take dominion, you will then, by default, use your power to take domination over what doesn't belong to you, what isn't yours. And you'll find your sense of manhood in taking what you didn't make and in dominating people that don't belong to you. That's what you'll do. And you have to choose. Therefore, as a fifth grade boy, here's your job. If any of the other boys in this class touch any girl like they shouldn't, they are your job. You have to tackle them, push them, Give them a stern talking to. Humiliate them in front of your friends. If it comes to that, beat them up. Report them to the teachers. It is your, you show these girls that you're learning how to be a protector. That it's not the teacher's job to keep you from touching other girls. It is your job to protect your sisters in Christ from these other guys if they're playing the scumbag role. If they're being pirates, you be the knights. That's your job, not the administration's job. And they start giggling because they're embarrassed because every sex talk's embarrassing. But it's a different kind of embarrassment. It's, oh, I have... And you know what they did? They started doing it. Like, the principal's like, hey, four or five guys tackled this boy out on the playground. <laughs> and they said, you told them to do it. And they said, you not only told them to do it, but that if they got in trouble for it, to tell them to come talk to you. And I said, I absolutely did that. I was like, you should encourage that. Because one of the, one of the most important things about embracing male sexual identity is understanding that the maleness is a good thing. That it's fundamental, that it's not to be eradicated, and that it has a profound purpose. That profound purpose is rooted in things like strength and energy and risk, and that that is a good thing to be embraced. Does that make sense? 
And it, it's not gonna, listen, it's not going to look the same in everybody. Like there's a guy at my church who's like, he teaches elementary school. He has very effeminate um, mannerisms. He's married to like this hard charging, like very gruff woman. And like he's a dad and he doesn't really like sports. And you know what you call that guy? A man. Because he goes to work and he loves his wife and he parents his children and he takes dominion over the chaos in his life. And he stands on the wall and does what needs to be done to, cre- to create a space of flourishing for his family. That guy's called a man, right? And the guys that work on small gas engines that do all that stuff too are also men. Do you understand? Okay, now, you might think, okay, so Nick, then where do we go to biblically order our understanding of masculinity? We probably should go to Jesus, right? Because he's true humanity. Maybe we could, we could see that. And, and that's not really the answer. Not because Jesus isn't the answer. But it's important to recognize Jesus came to redeem something. He came to redeem something. What did he come to redeem? He came to redeem something he already made. Right? When it says that, like in, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, that you're a new creation in Christ. It does not mean you're a new creation ex nihilo, like out of nothing. That he erased everything that came before and created something new out of nothing. That out of nothingness in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 is in reference to your sin and guilt. That you are a new creation, that is everything that was broken in sin and all the guilt that was laid upon you is completely put away, so eradicated that you are like a completely brand new thing. And in Christ, you have experienced the miracle of regeneration, and in the Spirit, you are a new creation. But you're not a new creation that's in discontinuity from your previous humanity. You can think about it this way. Let's say somebody bought a pair of really great leather shoes like 40 years ago. Really thick leather, really great shoes. Didn't really take care of them. Wore out the soles. Didn't really put conditioner on the leather. But also didn't literally tear them. And like a restoration (coughs) cobbler gets a hold of them, right? And they like cut off the old sole and they put on a new sole and they recondition the leather and they re-dye the leather and they do all that stuff. When When he gets done... It's going to be like a shoe you can't even buy today. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be like these vintage, beautiful-looking shoes. Because he, he recreated, like, in a way that you would not even recognize what he made. But he did it in continuity to something that was already a very high quality that had been broken and lost and damaged. And he takes that thing that had already been created, good, and he remakes it into the image of its original goodness for its original purpose, redeems it, and then re-releases it for its additional purpose. For example, one of the things that some evangelicals are really bad at is answering the question, what is your salvation for? Right? And if the answer is, well, it's so that I can be forgiven of my sins, and so I can go to heaven, and so that I can have assurance of Christ. Okay, I don't know if you realize that. That's all circular reasoning. That's a tautology. You're basically saying your salvation is for salvation. That's not an answer. Your, your salvation is for something. What's it for? Right? And the answer is, so that you can be remade in the image of Christ, so that you can do what you were made to do in the first place. Right? It says, it says it like this in Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your old former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This phrase, created to be like God, doesn't refer mainly to an utterly new creation but to a full recreation in what you were created to be in the first place. Created to be like God is very similar to made in the image of God. The problem is, is that we didn't do that very well in true righteousness and holiness. And so what's happening is Christ has come in true humanity, dying for all humanity, 
so that humanity, both its maleness and its femaleness, can be remade and renewed in to be like God in the image of its creator, except this time, not in rebellion and curse and unrighteousness, but through Christ, by the Spirit, with the mind of Christ, in love, in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so what that means is, is that what we need to do, if we really want to understand what we are in our sexual identities as men, we have to go back to where maleness and femaleness and our sexual identity is laid out in the scriptures. And the only place it is given broad exposition is in the first three chapters of Genesis. Okay, a lot of people think that all Genesis tells us is the age of the earth and that human beings are all made in the image of God. So we're all special, we all have dignity, and we all, um, we're all God's children and should be treated with that dignity. Now, that is a very, very, very important idea, especially the idea that that's, that includes both men and women. Right? The, the first chapters of Genesis is the first text in the entire history of the world that believes that both men and women are made in God's image. And that has shaped human society for a few thousand years now. However, what it also does is gives the fullest exposition of what maleness and femaleness is, how they're supposed to work with each other, their relationship to God, and their relationship to all of creation. Okay, a couple things about that. So, we're only told two things about the creation of human beings in Genesis 1. One, that we're image bearers of the holy God. God made them male and female in his image, and that he made them male and female. That's not, that's not just a passing thing, like, oh, by the way, both men and women are in God's image. That's not what the text actually says. It says, male and female, he created them. Meaning not, yes, he created a man in his image, oh, and by the way, man there means both male and female. It says, he made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Meaning, he created the male, and he created them female. That's a second point. It affirms that the dignity of God is with both sexes, but it also affirms that he creates them in those two sexes. Does that make sense? It's important, because what we then take from Genesis 1 is that we are there's two absolutely fundamental things about our identity that we're supposed to take out of that text. And we're supposed to carry them with us through the rest of the story of the scriptures and throughout our lives, which is, one, we are image bearers of the holy God, and we are made male and female. That's it. Therefore, the maleness in that is very important. Then what we, the next thing we hear is this, that when he made them in his image and made them male and female, he blessed them. Now, that is a phrase very easy to read over. I've read over it a bazillion times, seems like. It's very important because later on in, ch- in chapter 3, what is humanity going to fall under? A curse, right? But... When he makes the male and female, he looks at them, he sees what he's created, he want, one, he pronounces all of creation with them as the crowning achievement, very good rather than just good, and then he blesses them. And he does that before he tells them to do anything. They are blessed. They're just like they're supposed to be. They're made just for what they're meant to be made for. He wants their good and flourishing and happiness. Do you understand? And then he tells them to do something. That is, he gives them a purpose. right? And he says two things. One, fill the earth that is populated with fertility, and two, take dominion over it. Right? That is, take, move it from the state of chaos to the state of good and very good order, which is exactly what God does in chapter 1 of Genesis. Right? He, in the beginning, he creates the heavens and the earth, and then it says, the earth is formless and void. 
right? That is, it's in chaos. It's void. Nothing good has been formed. And it's a mess. It's in chaos, whatever is there. And in that, God speaks these things. And he creates a series of ordered creations. That is, God is God creates it. And whether you believe he created something generally good, then it fell, whatever you think about the, the beginning. When he steps in and speaks in chapter 1, verse 2, he speaks into the disorder and nothing, and he starts to create order and something. And then he gets to the end and he says, now, human beings, you are spatially located. You're not omnipresent. So in order for my dominion in my image bears to go to the whole earth, what do we need? We need more humans, right? We need a lot more humans. And they're supposed to spread out in the whole earth, so there's image bearers everywhere to do this taking of dominion, which is why the Tower of Babel is so bad, right? You get to Genesis 10, all the people are like, let's all get together in a city and build straight up. And God's like, no, how about I go get this moon worshiper from Haran and tell him to go where I tell him and see if he'll go where I tell him. And then I'll tell him I'll make a name for him instead of people making a name for themselves. Does that make sense? So God wants lots of humans because he's got to cover the whole earth with them because we're, we're spatial because we're bodily. Right? We have to be physical to interact with the physical creation, but that means we're spatially limited, so there's got to be a lot of us. So we're supposed to fill the earth, and then we're supposed to do this dominion taking. That's our job. But we're supposed to do it in what? The image of God. That means we're supposed to do it in godliness. Literally bearing the image of God, living faithfully in the image of God, is what godliness is. It's what Jesus came to restore. So we're supposed to fill the earth, that is, have what Malachi 2 calls godly offspring. God doesn't just want babies. He wants disciples. He wants human beings that will grow up into bearing the image of God well and beautifully and to do it as male and female. That's what he's after. And, he, and the reason why he says, I hate divorce in chapter 2, isn't because he woke up one day and said, hey, divorce is a terrible idea. He, he knew from the beginning that if you want godly adult human beings through human fertility, you don't just need a woman who has a baby. You need a garden with a wall that protects the family in which these new humans can not just grow up into physical maturity, but so that they can actually grow up into godliness. And he believes that what is necessary is for the man and the woman to be in union with each other and to create that space so that he can not only have offspring, but godly offspring. And that's the specific reason in Malachi 2, he takes issue with divorce and interreligious marriage in Ezra and Nehemiah. Does that make sense? I can't go more than that right now. Okay. So what that means is if we embrace that, biblical masculinity would look something like seeking to create a fertile covenantal family of godliness unless you have a good reason to support the larger work in single celibacy. I can't give full exposition to that right now. Two, do meaningful work that leads to human and creational flourishing. You should work, and you should work in a way that actually produces something for others and leads to human and creational flourishing. That is the world or the people. Three, you should labor in the redemptive community of godliness, that is the church. Because, turns out, this creational calling has gone awry. And God has sent Christ to produce salvation and to create a people, bringing men and women back to their created purpose through redemption in Christ and by the Spirit. And lastly, to cooperate with others and enjoy, cooperate with, enjoy and belong to others for good. So when we actually cooperate as men and women to take dominion in the earth, we produce things like families, but also societies and economies, and other things that allow us to work together to bring dominion over the earth. Does that make sense? Okay, now, I want to quickly go over four fundamentals of what this would mean for us practically if we embraced it. As far as, okay, you guys, I'm giving you like the first 30 minutes of like a six-hour, two-day seminar I would do if I was...
doing like the whole gamut, okay? So, first, sexuality is everywhere. And I don't just mean everywhere in the culture. I mean everywhere in your being. What I mean by that is this. You might be like, yeah, dude, sexuality is everywhere. Like everywhere you turn this porn. Every, every, like you drive down the road and everything they're selling with women's legs and boobs. Like no matter what I do, like this sexuality is everywhere. And the answer is, you're right. Sexuality is everywhere. And the reason sexuality is everywhere in the world around you is because it's everywhere in your being. Everything that you do, you do as a man. And anything that you do, you do as a man. One way to think about it is like this. If you're made in the image of God, and then you're made male and female, and that is your fundamental identity, every way the image of God comes out, it comes out through your maleness or femaleness. Some people tend to think that they, are, they do 80% of their life as like a generic human being, and 20% of their life like as a man. It's the dude stuff. I fix things, I take out trash, I punch people if necessary, like there's some things that I do, I like sports, and then the rest of the time, my wife and I are basically interchangeable, women are interchangeable, it doesn't really matter, okay? I don't think that's right at all. I think that every single thing you will ever do in your entire life, no matter what it is, you will do as a man, and that will affect how you do everything you will ever do. That is, your sexuality is in everything and is everywhere in your life. It is not just when you're trying to be sexual. Does that make sense? So it's going to be important when you get a little older for some of you young guys, and you're like, you're, you feel like your sex drive is everything. It's, your sex drive is just loudest right now. Okay, it's not your whole sexuality. It's just the loud, it's like the angry, like, like, li, like middle child. That, like, it just is yelling really loud right now. But as you get older and you realize that as a man, like, you can lead. And you can order goods and you can create things and you can do all this stuff. Like, you're going to do all this stuff as a man. And that's going to matter. And so leading a family is going to matter. What you accomplish at work is going to matter. What you do in the community is going to matter. Everything you do, all your friendships and how you support different friends in the crises of their lives, that's all going to matter. It's all part of your masculinity, part of your sexual identity. Do you understand? Okay, great. Number two, your sexuality is a blessing under a curse. It is not a curse. I asked the guys on my staff, like, what's one of some of the things I should definitely say in this session? And one of the guys was like, that men are not disgusting because they like to have sex a lot. Right? Because, I mean, if you, you don't have to raise your hand, but, like, how many guys have propositioned their wives and their wife at some point said some version of, you are so disgusting. It's like you want to have sex every minute. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't plan on being friends. Like, did you think we were going to be friends? Like, um, and sometimes women won't just be like, okay, just, I'm just, let me get in the mood. This is just a little tedious for me because I'm not wired this way. But they, they really feel like, they make you feel like you're kind of gross, especially if you're like, you're like your sex drive is like pretty active and theirs is not as active, right? And that's just... It, now, now, that doesn't mean there isn't something wrong with that, right? Because most guys will put a guilt trip on their wife or be like, oh, you're, uh, like, you're going to be mean to me, I'll just be mean right back. The sexual desire a man has for his wife is in and of itself good. That's how we got the first song in the Bible, if Genesis 1 isn't a song. The first song in the Bible is, is Adam seeing Eve and bursting into song. Right about her beauty and how she's made for him and how he delights in it and how this is fantastic. Okay, I don't think that they were just friends, right? That doesn't mean. I don't know if you've read the read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, but there's a couple of places in the Space Trilogy where there's this somebody does something pleasurable, and like immediately when it's over, he wants to do it again. So there's so when Ransom is on is on the middle planet Paralandra, there's this fruit and he's in this like 
pre-fall world. And he takes the fruit and he bites into it and he eats this whole fruit. It's so great. And he gets done with the fruit and immediately upon being done with the fruit, he's like, let me get another one. And at that moment, he feels like his first sense of guilt in this new world. And he realizes there's something broken about him that immediately on the completion of a pleasure, he seeks to grasp it again. And he realized there's something wrong with that. I'm not really sure what's wrong with that, right? And so for some men, part of the repetition of our, our sexual desire has to do with a brokenness in our ability to enjoy and exist in something that's happened rather than compulsively repeat it, right? You can see this with, with guys who are like, masturbate multiple times a day. It's like, you're like, you're not doing that because you enjoyed it. Like, the first time you enjoyed it. And then it was just compulsion after that, Right? And so, like, there are things broken about it, but the, but the humanity, the masculinity itself, God said it was blessed. So, there's a couple ways you can look at it. Understanding something about our broken sexuality is important. So, for example, on this front table, I have five wine glasses, okay? They're all fairly similar in the sense that they all hold liquid, they have a stem, and they all have a base. Okay, now, in here, I have a fine Italian tile that my mom did her new kitchen with, okay? You guys may want to close your eyes when this happens. Okay, because I'm going to drop this and it's going to shadow okay. Now, if I had a hundred of these glasses and I dropped them onto this tile, right, what percentage are going to break? Okay, yeah, okay, here we go, ready? Okay, if I did that a hundred times, they'd all break. Okay, I think I got something actually too hard for this illustration to work really well. Okay, now, of the hundred wine glasses, how many of them would break exactly the same as the others? None. Statistically, statistically likely that, reasonably speaking, none would break exactly like all the others. Okay. Now, it's important to recognize that when the fall affects masculinity and therefore our sexual identity, there's a breaking that happens to the blessed state of masculinity. Okay. But when it hits men, it doesn't produce exactly the same thing in every one of us. Do you understand? That's important. And, the re- and that goes, actually goes back to the first point. The reason it doesn't is because your sexuality is connected to everything and anything. Because it's connected to everything and anything, the way your sexuality breaks is specifically related to how everything else broken in your life broke. Does that make sense? So, for example, um, Jay Stringer, in his book, he talks about guys coming in and wanting to get free of porn addictions, right? And he, and he says, they come there like, they're like, Jay, I'm just looking at porn all the time. And his first question is, okay, what kind? What kind? I was working with a guy in my church who's working through um, a sexual addiction thing, and he did the assessment, and it covered a lot of like what his family was like, and he um, he worked he, he wrote down what he, what his unwanted sexual behaviors were in one part of the assessment, and then what his family life was like in the other part of the assessment, and then he then he this part he does out of the computer and he sends in, and it exactly predicted his exact sexual unwanted behaviors. And his are not normal ones. They're, they're weird. That's why I had to get him in this system, because he wasn't responding to the se- sexual addiction ministry like we were hoping. So we got him into this. The f- his first session with him, he was like, oh my gosh. He realized that his sexual brokenness was, to- was incredibly related to his, his parents and his family life and where he was and his family and what dysfunctions were going on and how that affected the specific ways in which his sexuality got broken. Because, listen, every person breaks. That's what the curse does. Right? And every Christian person should recognize 
that your sexual identity has been broken and is struggling with the curse. Every man in this room is dealing with a broken and disordered sexual identity. Every single person. Right? Which, listen, this is very helpful when you talk to people who are LGBTQ um, oriented. Because if your view as a Christian is, what I do in a married relationship with my wife that produces kids is sexual wholeness. And what you want to do is sexual deviation and disorderedness. You're actually not speaking according to the scriptures. That's not Christian. Okay? So I was a virgin when I got married. I've had sex with one woman in my life. We have four children. For theological reasons, we believe we should have children, even though that's scary as heck, right? <laughs> I've never had an affair. I've never engaged in any sexual misconduct in my life. My wife and I have a, have a healthy sexual relationship, okay? What my wife and I are experiencing is not sexual wholeness the way Adam and Eve experienced it in the garden, okay? It's not the same thing. Now, it's redeemed a lot, and it's a lot better than this. There's been a lot of gluing together that's happened, okay? But it's not Edenic beauty, and it's not what will be recreated in heaven. Do you understand? It's not the same thing. Every Christian, every one of us, is warring against the effects of the curse and the disorderedness that the curse has brought into our sexual lives. But here's, here's an... So, therefore, as we seek sexual wholeness, as we seek wholeness in our sexual identity, as we seek fullness in our masculine identity... We can't all literally follow exactly the same path. We all got lost a little different. We all got broken a little different. And each of our paths are going to be a little different, though they're going to follow very similar spiritual principles. Does that make sense? Now, what it also means, though, is, is that the question then becomes, well, is the blessing gone? When God made us male and female and said, and blessed us and ordered us, is that blessing gone? Right? And the answer is No. Because those three things hang together. There's the image of God, the maleness and femaleness, and its blessedness, and then there is the mission, what God told us to do. Now, is the image gone? Right? No, as we read through the rest of the Bible, human beings are broken, but they still bear the image of God. Right? By Genesis 9, right, we're told that if you kill a human being, you're going to be killed because you killed someone who bears the image of God. Genesis 5 reaffirms that men and women are made in the image of God all through the Bible. Human lives are, are considered sacred because they're made in the image of God. Well after the fall. Well into sin. Well after Noah. Does that make sense? We still bear the image. And do we still have the mission? Well, as you go through the scriptures, God is always pushing men and focus, like pushing us in our calling to fulfill the creation mandate. Marriage is good. It's good to have children. These things are blessing. If you live, if you live in God, obedience to God, what's going to happen? He will give you the land. What does that mean? You'll have a place to take them in. You'll have a place. You'll have a scope of vocation. And he said, I'll bless you with offspring. You will be able to fill the earth and subdue it. That is, even under the curse, he will empower you to live out your created purpose. Right? So wait. So the image of God is still present. The maleness and femaleness is still present, obviously. And the mission is still present. Do you understand? The blessing is still present too. Even though... It's under the curse. You live. You have to live in that dichotomy. You're fighting the curse, and you still have the blessing, and you have to live in the tension of that, like a fighter. Yeah. These last two points are a little short. What's that? Yeah. Okay. The third is sexual identity needs to be formed, not just not deformed. Okay. So our goal is not to just not look at porn, or not have an affair. Like if, if your main goal is to not get deformed, 
or just to get better from where you're hurt. That's not going to do it. And that's not really the goal. Sexual identity has to be formed. There's a lot of things in life like that. So for, who's had a baby? I mean, like, you're a woman attached to you. Okay, great. Okay, so babies are very annoying creatures because they mature so slowly, okay? Like, elephants mature faster than babies. I mean, I don't know if you know this. Human beings are literally the most helpless creatures at birth in the world. Like, there's stuff that, right when they're born, they go and eat something. Shark babies eat their siblings in the womb, okay? Like, human beings are born totally helpless and remain totally helpless like into their late teens <laughs> that's not totally true but they mature extremely slowly it takes a while for them to just work out their eyesight it takes a couple of months to work out how their neck works right and then like after a month they can like get up on all fours it, that's what they're like now think about Adam and Eve God creates them whole they're fully adult he puts them in a garden what's the nature of a garden Dominion has already been taken, right? But what's their job? Well, according to Genesis 1, their job was from the moment of creation to go out into a chaotic world and to take full dominion. So why are they in the garden? Right? You see, if you think Adam and Eve were in the garden because that's where they were going to live forever, that's not right. Genesis 1 tells us that's not right. They were going to go into a chaotic world and take dominion over it by multiplying and taking dominion. So why are they in the garden? Right? And the answer is probably something like, because they didn't know anything. They actually weren't ready yet. So God created them, told them what they were going to do, and then in Genesis 2, he starts teaching Adam how to do it. Hey, Adam, here's an animal. What are we going to call it? God knows what he wants to call it. But Adam has to call it something and name it. Right? Adam, what are we going to do with this? Adam, can you fill the earth with any of these creatures? No. Okay, I'm going to make something. Let's make something. And he makes a woman. He's like, do you see how he's like, there's like a maturation process. Adam and Eve are being formed into their humanity, right? What's lesson one? Lesson one is, okay, tend this garden. It's already, dominion's already been taken. All you got to do is keep dominion. And you got one job. Okay, one job is this. Trust me to give you the knowledge you need. And trust the order that I've created between man and woman. Because who receives the command you're not supposed to eat from the tree, right? The man does, and the woman is not created yet. There's no evidence in the text itself that God said that. The only thing we have is that the woman recites the command back and it's already been expanded upon and actually um, corrupted a little bit, right? And so, and when God puts the curse on Adam, he actually says to him, he said, Adam, the reason you're getting this curse this way is because you listened to your wife. Now, that is not a reason to go home and tell your wife that you're not supposed to listen to her, right? What it is, is a statement that he that Adam rejected the creational order where God had told him what to do and he was supposed to listen to God over his wife. So you can tell your wife that if you listen to her over God, that, that, is, that Genesis 3 is relevant. And you see what breaks down. What breaks down is the relationship between God and people, the bearing of the image, being like God, it breaks down. Fertility breaks down and taking dominion breaks down. You see, it's exactly a curse upon the commands. Right? Does that make sense? And so what has to be done when we, when, we're, when we take men, whether men ourselves or the men that we're related to, you've got to teach them what it means to be a man. Just like a kid has to figure out how to use his eyes and its head and stuff like that. Your, your masculinity is not ready formed. Right? It's one of the reasons why it's really bad to say, because 2 to 4% of men are going to be um, 
same-sex oriented or trans, we can't talk about what normative masculine gender means. Right? What we have to be is normative with inclusion. You've got to be like, okay, here's what men, here's what you aim for as a man. And if for some reason the way you're wired doesn't seem to fit this, that seems inordinately hard for you, come and talk to me because in our masculinity, we are strong enough to be kind to everyone, to not attack people in a position of weakness who are afraid to come forward. We're not bullies. We protect people who people could bully and we care about everyone. We want the flourishing of everyone. And when other men have trouble carrying their load, we carry more weight because we're the kind of people who work and we have strength and resources left over to help others. Because like Paul says in the epistles, tell anybody who steals to get a job so they no longer steal and they have something to share with those in need. You see the same idea. Make your own garden. Be productive so you have something to share. Don't use your masculine energy to go and steal from others like a pirate and pillager. He literally says that in the epistles. Does that make sense? And so, but what you have to do is you don't not form 95% of people so that 5% of people don't feel hurt. You teach the 95% of people what it means to be masculine and a man as an image bearer of God. And then you make sure people know there's going to be some people that are going to really struggle with this. And we love you, and we're going to help, and we're not going to attack you. But we have to we have to lay out the norm, which is the same thing for singleness. Singleness is better in First Corinthians seven in a way, but there's no sense in the Bible that the Bible expects more than ten or fifteen percent of people to embrace non-sexual celibacy. Right? Okay. So let's end quickly. Um, fourth and lastly, sexual restoration is possible and necessary. For those who are experiencing really profound sexual brokenness, sexual addiction, or unwanted sexual desires and actions, activities, all that kind of stuff, um, it doesn't have to be that way. Okay, And now you may have tried all kinds of stuff and feel like um, nothing gives, but here's, here's the thing. If you do something that doesn't work, isn't supposed to work, it's not going to work. So for example, if you have a swamp next to your house and you keep getting attacked with mosquitoes, and you deal with that problem by slapping mosquitoes when they try to bite you. You're going to be miserable. And you're going to get bit all the time. Okay? And if you say, well, I'm going to stop just slapping the mosquitoes. I'm going to do something about the swamp. And so you try to set the swamp on fire to get rid of it. Right? You're doing something that's deeper. You're getting at the real problem. But you're not doing something that actually deals with that real problem in relationship to what that problem really is. What you have to do with the swamp is drain it. Does that make sense? And what a lot of evangelical Christians have done in our, in our sometimes unholistic and not as biblical as we think it is understanding of, of spiritual development is we have done stuff that is essentially like swatting mosquitoes. Like, oh, well, just if you th- find a girl attractive and you think you're starting to lust, just look away or slap yourself with rubber bands or like be angry or talk to other people who are doing the same thing and like commiserate together or just use shame to work. That just, that's just slapping mosquitoes. And if you, if you say, well, I'm going to go deeper, I'm going to... I'm going to find my identity in Christ and that's going to make these things go away when I really know who I am in Christ. Yes, sort of. Sort of. But it really only works when you take your identity in Christ and you find the thing that's really driving your sexual addiction and you apply your identity in Christ to that specific thing in the specific way your identity in Christ applies to that thing. If, there's a, if, if you're just generally identifying in Christ and you're not actually finding the heart of darkness where that thing really is broken, it's really, it really doesn't work. And you feel very pious, 
And what happens is you're going to quit the faith. You're going to walk away from God. Because you're going to do the deeper thing, and you're going to try super hard, and you were theological, you believed the gospel, and you worked so hard, and it didn't work. And so there must be something wrong with this truth. It's what the Bible says, so the Bible must be wrong, and the gospel must be false. And you walk away. Because nobody wants to feel ashamed their whole life. Does that make sense? Okay, a couple resources. Um, I wrote a book called Substance Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor. You should buy 15 copies of the book table. It's fantastic. Um, and it deals with some of the things that are under this, especially chapter four. It's quoted in, uh, there's a lot of podcast episodes in the handout. There's a bunch <laughs> on masculinity. They're like hour-long episodes. Um, and I think you'll find them very helpful. They're aimed at like 20 to 30-year-olds, but they should help people. Greg Forrester's book, Joy for the World, especially part three, chapter six on family and sexuality is very helpful. And then um, at High Point, we have, we're going to have a sexuality conference in 2020. These dates, October 9th and 10th. Um, it's not expensive to go to. It's like 50 bucks. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry will be our headline speaker, but there will be, there will be tracks specifically on sexual trauma, sexual healing. It's the whole conference is on sexuality one way or another. And it's going to be, it's going to be full though. So when it start when, when your station opens up, you're going to want to get a ticket because we can only do about 1100 people. All right. So, uh, let's do some Q and a, okay. So here's my short answer to that. My short answer is if you scroll back through the engagement Quit podcast, to the, um, the episodes from our last Sexuality Everywhere conference, I do an hour-long session on the gospel and the LGBTQ community. It's an hour-long session. The recording's, I think, pretty good. And I cover all of that. What's that podcast? It's called the Engage and Equip podcast. If you go to the book table, you can get a little card for free. But if you put into your podcast app, Engage and Equip Madison, you should get it. Um, you'll have to scroll back a ways now to get those episodes, but they're there. Um, and if you, if you like, email me. We'll send you what episode it is. Um, but I would say a couple things right now. One is, un- is get the whole, like, we all are struggling with a disordered sexuality. Every single one of us. It's not just LGBTQ people. If you, if you norm it that way, it really disarms thoughtful LGBTQ people and advocates. Secondly, you need to be on the right side of medicating minors in relationship to trans identities. It is a monstrosity. You should be against it. You should find it hateful. You should write letters. You should do what you can to say we should not be medicating kids who identify as trans before puberty and giving them puberty blockers and then cutting on them. That is a medical monstrosity. It is horrific, and you should be categorically against it. Okay, The, the lawsuits are already being filed. This is going to be the, the biggest medical malpractice um, crisis of your lifetime. It, hundreds of people are going to get involved in class action law, lawsuits. It's going to be multiple millions of dollars. In fact, at our conference this year, one of our headline speakers, Brandon Showalter, has been covering a lot of this for the Christian Post. And he's like, Nick, you have this is it, the, the horrificness of this is unspeakable. So if you get on, get, be on the rest, do not capitulate on this because it's going to come out and it's going to be soon. And you need to be like, not nah, I told you so, but like, we knew. What you could have known, you should have known. It was right here, and the gospel would have helped you, but you didn't listen to it. You thought this would work. And I think, kind of like the civil rights movement, was you, the moral authority of the civil rights movement was used to create a moral authority for the sexual revolution, which was not moral, for the most part. For the most part. Similarly, I think this horrific thing happening with the medication and cutting on trans kids and the mutilation of children... If we're on the right side of this, the moral authority of that could help us push back on some other things, too, and to reorder how we understand some of those things. Okay, let me stop there. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a couple things you can, you can say about that. The, the first thing is, is that you can say, I don't agree with all the assumptions you're making. 
and, and, the, and the argument you're making is based on power, not truth. Like, you're telling me that, but why would one believe that? Why would one believe that you can define your sexuality any way you want? We don't believe that about anything else in life, right? Um, but I, I think, I mean, because sexual identity is like the second part of our identity, it's like, it's one of the things I say, I say to Christians a lot is, when LGBT people say, this is my identity, right? Some Christians would be like, well, you know, there's a lot more to life than sex, and, you know, that shouldn't be your identity. I don't think that's actually right, because if you understand sexual identity the way I've said, the only thing that's more basic to a human identity is the image-bearing of the Holy God. That's it, right? And so my argument is the only way you can actually look at an LGBTQ person in the face and say, the reason why you can't make that your identity is because there's something deeper in your identity than that, which is that you're an image-bearer of the Holy God. And they're like, well, I don't believe in that. Well, you say, well, it's okay if you don't believe in it, but... The reason why you're arguing with me is you have a reason. That you're fundamentally different from all the other animals. That you have a moral consciousness. And that is the remains of the, the existence of the image bearing of the holy God that God has given you. And that is more basic. And it has a moral consciousness to it. And I think there's, there's multiple ways to grapple with that. But ultimately with somebody like that is, yeah, I mean, set your watch, it's going to be three years. I mean, like you, I mean, you can't just, I don't think for most people you just come at them with the full hammer. You don't shoot them with both barrels of the shotgun of truth. You talk to them, you listen to them, you try to figure out where they may not be so emotionally flooded that you can talk about something, and you talk about that, you support them personally. Like, I mean, I have conversations with LGBTQ people a pretty good bit, and like, it's kind of like, like, there's this principle. When people are mad at you and they're yelling at you, you don't explain to them why they're wrong. Do you understand? Like, that's just a fundamental human reality. People are mad, you just go, yes, yes, you listen, you listen very carefully to what they're saying, and then when they're done, you repeat back to them what they said exactly and carefully and even more articulately than they said it because they're angry, so that they know you get it. You totally understand what they're saying. And then you don't capitulate, but you don't correct. You say, I'm going to think about that, or that's really interesting, or something like that. And then you try to love them as a person, and then you go from there. But it's, it, yeah, like, man, in some ways, manner is bigger than message, I guess. It's built on that relationship that you have with them. Yeah, so in my church when I was going through 1 Corinthians, before I preached the homosexuality message, I, I went off on heterosexual sexual sin for the whole sermon before that. And then I re-preached that for half of the homosexuality sermon. And that really disarmed a lot of LGBTQ-oriented people in my church and people who heard the sermons later and so on. And then when people attacked me about it, I was like, did you listen to the sermon right before that in the sermons we did at my church? And they're like, no. I was like, well, here's what I did. When I tell them that, they go, oh, you're a bigot, but you're a very consistent one. And loving in that sense. And, and, and you've got to start with integrity. People hate your guts for what you believe, but they believe you, be- you really believe it. You're trying to be loving. You're trying to respond to the truth. You're trying to be good. There's a respect that you can win, I think, even when they think that you're terrible. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we got to end. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to be around. Uh, I'll be at the book tables. If you want to talk to me, I'll be here for a few minutes. Sorry that I couldn't answer more questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. 
We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.